Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, involving and supporting family caregivers in care planning and delivery. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on September 14, 2017. In this podcast, Siona Regev, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Geriatric Section, discusses strategies for creating support systems. Well, good morning or good afternoon. Uh, my perspective is a little bit different since I work in a geriatric outpatient clinic. And so the focus is going to be a little bit different from the patient's perspective and then how does it impact on the caregivers. So in, my, in our clinic, the, we see about 250 patients uh, each month. And the majority of our patients live in the community by themselves. They may have some kind of support system, whether it's a provider through the state or through family members. Sometimes it's long distance, but the majority are in their own homes, apartments by themselves. And what we've noticed, and I've been here in this clinic for a long time, is that the majority, I would say 80%, even more than 80% of our patients suffer from some form of cognitive impairment. And to various degrees on the, on the gradient, for, for those who have maybe mild cognitive impairment to those who have advanced dementia to the various degrees. So it really impacts the way our patients present themselves, how do and what do we need to do in order to evaluate and determine what will be the best intervention based on the presentation at any given time. Next slide, please. Next slide. So when we talk about cognitive impairment, usually I would, it's really not, not a dichotomy, but usually we either see mild cognitive impairment among our patients or we see some form of dementia when that is diagnosed, which is, in many cases, translates into partial capacity. We do uh, perform here decision-making capacity in our clinic, and so this is on the gradient. When the majority of our folks, our patients, suffer from some difficulties in their decision-making capacity, and we can talk more about that and how does it impact, again, caregivers or what do we need to do. So when we talk about mild cognitive impairment or MCI, the majority of our patients, when they tell us that they are forgetful, they're very, very functional. I had actually a patient just the other day 60 years old, very vibrant, very independent, very, very functional with her ADLs and all of her IADLs, yet she proceeded to tell me that in the last few months she's noticed that she's forgetful with her short-term memory, that sometimes when she cooks she forgets to turn off the stove, that sometimes when her husband reminds her to do things she doesn't remember and she doesn't read anymore because she cannot retain information. Otherwise, she's very, very functional. So this is, some, this is usually presentation that most of our folks, even when they're mildly cognitively impaired, do not come forward and say to our, to our doctors or to their family members or to their loved one, hey, I think I have a problem with my memory. It's rare that someone is coming forward that is aware that is really seeking some professional help to try to enhance their quality of life. Majority of patients do not, and that is the challenge that we're facing. So. Partial capacity, so usually when patients come here and they may have already 
some form of dementia or we may diagnose them if they're new to the clinic with early dementia or more advanced moderate dementia. Again, it can be Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia or other types of dementia. Usually what we notice first is that there is some impairment with their personal care and hygiene. There is some impairment with their functional abilities, with their ADLs and mostly IADLs, which is the instrumental activities of daily living. So they may still be able to groom themselves and maybe dress themselves and ambulate and uh, do all their personal care and hygiene, maybe not as good as we would like to think, but they may fail taking their medications correctly or they may fail to remember to pay their bills on time. Next slide, please. That is when we see some red flags among our patients. For established patients that have been coming to the clinic, when new patients come to the clinic, we, by, by the way, we do conduct a geriatric comprehensive assessment where the clinicians will do their physical exam and myself will do a comprehensive geriatric assessment that includes also their cognitive assessment, their functional assessment, and their mental health assessment. So for established patients, if we notice that there are some changes with their personal care and hygiene, we notice that there is a change. If there are stains on their clothing as such, we know something has changed. If we know that there's some weight loss and there is no explanation whatsoever, medical reasons for why they've lost weight, and we see that consistently, we know that this is a red flag to look further. Why is it? And usually the, the, the issue is that we've noticed is that patients forget to eat. Either they don't have the appetite to eat or the food is there, but they're not able to go through the motions to heat up their food or to remember to eat. That's exactly the dysfunction. Sometimes they're just worried, they're concerned, or they're isolated. They pull, they pull everybody away from them, mostly for those individuals that have some mental health issues that have been trying to manage and hanging by themselves for a long time, and now they may also compensate and they start being compromised because they may have some executive function or early dementia or cognitive impairment, and they try to push away their loved one, their family members, their support system. Sometimes they're ashamed. Sometimes they don't want anybody to get close because they're afraid. They're afraid of loss of their independence. And so what do we need to look for? And this is really important. I think that the main concern is that if we notice that patients come to the clinic with the same issues, their chronic comorbidities, whether it's diabetes that is uncontrolled or hypertension or congestive heart failure and so forth, and regardless of what we recommend and what, how we educate them or their loved one, they keep coming back with the same symptoms or they end up having multiple admissions to the emergency room. And we know that the issues are not resolved and trying to think what is going on? Why is it that there is no follow-up? What's going on in their home? So what's happening that they're not able to follow through? So sometimes it's a matter of not understanding the instructions or they may have some cognitive impairment or they may have, and which includes executive dysfunction that inhibits them of following through. We usually tend to label them, label them, and I hate to say this, but we hear it all the time in the medical field as non-compliant. Those patients have a reason for the fact that they are not able to follow through. And usually in clinical setting, when they see the doctor, usually for 10, 15 minutes in private sectors, 
we don't know. The, the doctors may repeat the same question with the same instructions over and over again, but they're not they're they're presented with the same symptoms. There is something deeper inside that inhibits them from following through. And, and sometimes family members share concerns, and that's another way that for us to know when I get calls from family members and telling me, hey, my mom is more forgetful, my mom is now, I think that she's financially exploited, uh, the, the bills are not paid, she's giving cash to such and such to her provider, and there are some concerns, and this is to our attention, what should we do? So, so where do we go from here? Next slide, please. So resistant to change. So what is it that inhibits our patients? Why are they resistant to change? And as I mentioned earlier, I think that the main thing is self-determination, the need for being in control. For many of our patients, they want to stay in their homes regardless of how compromised they are. This is what's familiar for them. They don't want anybody to interfere. They don't want to reach out to people, to family members, caregivers, and so forth, because they're afraid. They're afraid that someone is going to take away their rights. Someone is going to take their independence away from them or place them in a nursing home or, in a, or take them to the hospital. They're afraid. So they rather push people away from them or not deal with it. They're just not going to the doctor until it comes to attention one way or another. So I think that's the main thing is fear of losing independence. And what we see mostly is that those individuals, the manifestation of their behavior or their home situation is self-neglect. The majority of our, the cases, I would say about from studies that we've done here in the county and within the hospital, I would say that at least 85% or more of cases that are reported to the state, even nationwide, are diagnosed among the elder mistreatment categories with self-neglect. And that is the group that is harder to detect and is the harder to intervene because those are adults. And usually the manifestation, again, is within the partial capacity where they have still a sense that what they want, they can express it, but then they have some gaps in execution and in the way that they do take care of themselves. Next slide, please. So where do we go from here? I think that the main thing is to try to, to work with the patient, with the person who is presenting those, those uh, manifestations. And so what we try to do is build a purport and try to work step by step with our patients by telling them how much we care about them, how much we're concerned about them, and yes, they're not going to a nursing home. This is not why we're doing an evaluation of their cognitive abilities or I have to do a re-evaluation because they're concerned, because we need them and try to work with us to take care of them, to help them enhance their quality of life. And I think that's the key component that we're trying to promote. It's about your quality of life. It's not about what I want, but it's to better serve you so that you can stay in the community in your own home. And so that's the first thing that we, we keep, keep um, emphasizing with our patients. So that is when our patients come by themselves, when we don't know if they have caregiver support groups. I always ask on an initial visit from the patients, can you give me a name and a phone number of anybody for an emergency? 
whether it's a former support system or an informal support system. And then I would ask their permission, usually, unless I'm concerned about their safety, may I call such and such. How can we manage, overcome challenges that we have and try to engage caregivers or engage the, the, um, the recipients or the patients? So in a specialty clinic such as ours, what we try to do is, as I mentioned earlier, is conduct an initial assessment on baseline, and then we'll have closed monitoring, especially when patients exhibit some red flags and we want to see them on a regular basis. We also work as a team, so it's really important for us to communicate among ourselves. What happens in, in regular clinics, I would suggest that either the patient or a family member will reach out to the doctor and share concerns and ask maybe that they would be evaluated for depression and or dementia, or make a referral for a specialist, whether it's a neurologist or a geropsychiatrist or a geriatrician, just to look further into what's going on because that, it, that is a change. So, how do, so what do we do? How do we intervene? I think that the main thing that is, has been very powerful, especially in our clinic, is to try to engage the caregiver in the process of e evaluation. So if I have the, the family member be present during the cognitive assessment, the psychosocial assessment, the mental health assessment, they notice when their loved one have difficulties, they struggle with orientation to time. And I do ask very, very casual questions and try to tailor it to the, the educational level of the individual. So those questions usually and, and the tasks that they have to follow are very, very basic. So if they notice that they have trouble with short-term memory, with processing information, uh, with recognizing shapes or filing through, such as drawing a clock, that it slumps, that uh, it's one of the references that we have later on in the presentation, they, notice, they are noticing there are some red flags. Also, when I do conduct my psychosocial assessment, I also ask questions about their history. So we look into the long-term memory and the current memory, and I ask questions about demographic, where do you live? So those casual questions can raise flags and bring awareness to the family members. Yes, something has changed. For long-distance caregivers, it's important that we communicate different modes, especially now with technology. There are many ways that I communicate with family members via email, via telephone conferences, and so forth. So it's really important to finding a balance between the patient's rights for self-determination, you know, how much can we engage, how much do we need to be involved. And it's really a fine line, you know, how, how far do we go, how far do we push, and how much can we allow for the patient to continue engaging in their functional uh, abilities. Next slide, please. So the case study. I just wanted to share a story real briefly about a patient that actually right now it's a couple, they're both in their 90s. Uh, she was, she's diagnosed with advanced Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the husband has been the caregiver. He himself is frail with cardiac problems, mobility, physical deconditioning, and he wanted to be in control. Three daughters are involved or semi-involved, living in different continents. The daughter that lives here, whom they live with, They've been having tension between them. And so the husband really did not want the daughter to be involved, number one. Number two, the finances have been depleted slowly. And so there's been a challenge in how to 
allow or or try to convince the spouse to get some help from us and from uh, the state and how to allow the daughter to step in. So I spent a lot of time with the spouse who later on became actually one of our patients. So both myself and our geriatrician had spent a lot of time trying to cultivate the relationship, build up support, and eventually the, the wife has received has been received, became a U.S. citizen and has been receiving provided care, and we're right now looking into trying to get some help for him. Um, next slide, please. Actually, we're going to move to the HIPAA. So next slide, number 48. So I'm shifting now to another issue that I think has been a challenge within our clinic, and that is with our patient, and that is how to navigate and how to access systems whether they were in the local arena, uh, state, or federal. And the majority of our patients have difficulties, not only them, but also caregivers, family members, have difficulties understanding the, the, the language and the intricacies that entails in benefits. Uh, and I'm going to go uh, uh, further and, and explain that sometimes the representative on the other side because of the, the issue of HIPAA and privacy, they do not allow other family members and or healthcare professionals to intervene unless there is a consent from the patient. Well, what happens when those patients are compensated? They are cognitively impaired or they have moderate to advanced dementia and there, is, there are no provisions for power of attorney or durable power of attorney for healthcare. What do we do? How do we take it from there? So some of the strategies that I've been using to try to empower the, either the patients and or the family members is do a lot of education, share with them some written instructions if we have a family conference. So I will guide them the, in advance the family member caregiver on the phone and in terms of the language, in terms of what kind of information do they need to share so they are prepared, whether it's social security number, Medicare number and so forth, demographic and also what to ask for. I also try, on the other end, to try to educate the, the agency representatives, the sites. Uh, usually they're young, they're young representatives. They follow a protocol that is very regimented that they have to uh, abide by. And I try to explain to them, try to think out of the box, try to be a little bit more flexible because we're dealing with patients that either don't understand what you're saying they cannot hear you, they cannot process, so you have to slow down. So I see myself as being an educator and try to work and navigate the system step by step with a lot of instructions and guidance on both sides. And just to give you an example, which is next slide, please, is, and that is a simple example that I encounter ne nearly every day where patients come in and all of a sudden something's changed uh, they are trying to get their medications, and either they don't remember what kind of a drug plan do they have, or they, they don't, they did not enroll in a drug plan, uh, a drug plan, Medicare D plan. Or I had a situation the other day of someone who had Medicare, Medicaid dual eligible, and now she's getting her widow pension, so no longer is dual eligible. She's back to Medicare, but it's in transition, and right now she has. She doesn't have the benefits that she needs to. So my role is to try to call Medicare 
try to educate the caregiver in advance on what we're doing, what do we need to look for forward to, and then while we're having the conference call with Medicare, to ask, have to have consent so they can talk to me so I can ask the right questions. And sometimes it is a challenge, especially if the patient and or the caregivers are not the representative payees and, and, the, and the representative on the other end are not convinced that this, where they're getting the yes for consent. So that's basically my, my role. I have added, I think that the next few slides, some tools that we use. This is the screening tools for MCI and partial capacity, number 8082, if I'm not mistaken. And so I, this, these are some of the tools that we use in our clinic in addition to ADLs and IDLs and the PHQ-9 for uh, mental health assessment or depression. I think I left, I do have some references in the following slides in terms of where to get information about these cognitive screening tools, but they have been very helpful for us to conduct in order to get information, baseline information about cognitive abilities, executive function, and capacity, which is the MedCell. Uh, it's a tool that we uh, here at uh, Baylor College of Medicine Geriatrics uh, and Harris Health, we developed this tool for our practices. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovation and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.